At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello everyone, this is David Nutt and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. And today I'm delighted to have with me Mendel Kalin. Now, many of you will know of Mendel through his pioneering work on music, the development of music as an adjunct, and I think he might tell us even as an alternative, perhaps, to psychedelic therapy. But I don't know that most of you will realise that once upon a time, he was a master's student of mine, a very long time ago. And it's great pleasure to have you here, Mendel, and I'm looking forward to you telling the world about your path, your wave path yourself from a student to now a businessman. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, David. And I was reflecting on exactly that interesting circle that we're making here. It feels like the master and the student are reconvening once again. You're taking over now, though. It's a great pleasure. <laughs> Indeed, it's a great pleasure to see uh, to see how you know what you've done and how you succeeded. But should we go back in, in history? Tell the audience about yourself, because I think you came to us from the Netherlands. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm born and raised in the Netherlands, a tiny little village in the Northeast, more specifically. I originally went to Groningen University in the North. And I know, David, you have a number of colleagues and friends there as well. It was a great university, had a great time there, studied there for a number of years, my bachelor's and my master's. And in the course of my bachelor education, I became increasingly interested in psychedelics, not because I took them at that moment. I had no experience with them. I switched to neuroscience originally because I really was interested in consciousness. And I realized that there are so many unknowns when it comes to the workings of the mind that neuroscience is the best route or one of the better routes to, to give voice to that, that interest in mind. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I learned about ketamine actually through a lecture by a Professor Kolhas, who you may know actually as well. He did a lot of work with MDMA and the serotonin system, yes. and animal models and social behavior. Right. And uh, it was a lecture, an introduction lecture on neuroscience. And he talked about ketamine and other compounds. And I read more about ketamine. And I, I read that ketamine can reliably facilitate these out-of-body-like experiences. And I suddenly realized that these compounds can be used to study these phenomena in an empirical way, in an experimental context. And that led me to read much more about psychedelics and eventually i had my own experience with magic mushrooms in the netherlands they were still legal back then this was in 2004 and very carefully prepared experience i read everything i could in the literature out there because i had access to the academic library most works i read back then were works by um, Vollenweider and and others and i realized that these compounds are relatively safe physically and that led me to really that experience was a very personally meaningful experience. And it made me really want to double down on that interest. There's much more to say in between, but eventually, David, I read, I, I kind of followed your um, the drama that played itself out in the UK with your leaving the commission, the Drug Advisory Commission for the UK government. <laughs> my, be my being sacked. Yes. <laughs> saying that magic mushrooms were not dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that story, of course, resonated with me because I, for a long time, I was just baffled by the realization that we have compounds here that are physiologically one of the safest out there. And then we have alcohol and other drugs that are you know, shipped to the masses. So that's how we originally came in touch with your lab and your work was actually a number of articles that I read in The Guardian and other outlets. But yeah, and then I met Robin at a conference in the UK called... This is uh, Robin, Robin Carhart-Harris. Yeah, Robin Carhart-Harris, of course. Yeah, yeah, there's another Robin in your lab that I <laughs> need to acknowledge as well. Yeah, Robin Carhart-Harris, Breaking Convention 2010. Uh -huh. And then he eventually invited me to do an internship in your lab. And that's how the whole thing started. 
So I joined you and, and Robin and others in 2011, September 2011. And eventually you offered me a PC. Yeah. We just moved from Bristol then. We just moved from Bristol up to Imperial then. And you came along as, yeah, one of our first master's students. I remember that. Interns. Yeah. Yes. Did you come via Beckley or did you have some relationship with Beckley? I can't remember. No, it was uh, you and Robin who introduced me to Amanda. Uh-huh. And I remember uh-huh. visiting her for the first time, driving down to, uh, to Oxford and, and all of that. That all happened in 2011, 2012, and eventually that turned into um, a PhD looking at uh, psychedelics and, and music. Yeah. So tell us about your relationship with music. I mean, that was something that you brought to us, I believe. I don't think we, were, uh, we knew about the potential impact of psychedelics on music and how music was often helpful in right. people realizing or opt- optimizing. But you brought some expertise. So where did you gain that expertise from? Yeah, I think I want to start by the fact that I grew up in a musical family. So my my, my parents encouraged uh-huh. every family, and I grew up in a large family, four siblings. <laughs> but everyone practiced the music, and I, I played uh-huh. since I was seven years old till about 19. Then I started to drum when I was 16 as well on top of that. And eventually I started to play lots of different things. And yeah, I've been making lots of music, and music really has been a huge way of, very important way for me to ground myself, to enjoy lots of different things. So music is a part of my upbringing, my life. When I was 21, just 21 that summer, I lived in the Amazon jungle for about four months. And I had my first experience with Ayahuasca in that period as well. And when I returned to the Netherlands, I felt I was on um, on a fork in the road or a fork on the on my waist speak, <laughs> to, to steal your joke and the <laughs> felt i needed to make a decision between doubling down fully focusing fully on music and sound art more specifically or focusing fully on becoming a psychedelic researcher and i decided after lots of thinking and um, that it's very important to get my credentials and finish my academic training uh, and yeah because that's really what the field is needing so I went back to university, finished my master with all of that in mind and kept making music. But it was one moment during, I think it was actually already during my PhD with you, very early on, 2012, in the course of 2012. And I remember the moment I was sitting in office, the fifth floor, <laughs> that corner over there behind my, my uh, computer. Yes, yes. And I saw the, an, an image of a treatment session run at Johns Hopkins University. And it's this now quite famous image of Bill Richards sitting next to, with someone else sitting next to a, a patient on a couch. And yes, I show that every time I get <laughs> Right. And the patient is wearing a headphone, right? We're listening to music with an eye mask. And I realized that music is almost the only stimulus patients are exposed to during these therapy sessions, that music plays this yes. central role during therapy sessions. Um, but no one is asking the heart questions. No one is empirically scrutinizing what music does, what the function is of music in psychedelic therapy, how music and psychedelics interact in the brain and you name it. So yeah, that was for me the moment that I, I crafted my, um, my arguments of why it is important to, <laughs> to study music. And I spoke with you and Robin um, about that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, I think you are our first PhD student, actually, I think in terms of psychedelic research and your PhD was on the relationship of music to that experience, yes? I think that's correct. Yeah, I think Lior Roseman followed two years two years in. I was halfway through maybe. Yeah, but I was at least the first PhD student of Robin, I believe, and the one that is following on following up on the interest on psychedelics and deepening the, the research on that's psychedelics. Right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. And there, there was one colleague in your lab. I think he came from Bristol. I was studying ketamine, I remember, as well. Maybe not in a clinical context. Yes, you are our, Robin and mine, first psychedelic PhD students. Well, now, you know, you've seen quite a few come through subsequently, but you're the only one that really has really focused on music. So, and you found some quite interesting things in your PhD. Do you want to, you know, share them with the listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's such a large question. I wonder where to, <laughs> where to begin. I think, first of all, it's, it's important to acknowledge that, well, actually, even go, going back further in time in traditional use of psychedelic plant medicines, like ayahuasca and peyote and, and mushrooms and you name it, that 
according to anthropologists, music plays this integral role in these sessions as well. That it's hard to think of any psychedelic, traditional psychedelic ceremony without the music. And then when you look, when, you, when we kind of move forward in time very quickly, and we, we enter the 50s, well, the 40s, 50s, 60s, and we look at the kind of first wave of research that happened studying psychedelics, where psychiatrists and scientists were of all sorts were trying to make sense of this new class of compounds and and how they can be utilized therapeutically that very soon they realized that from the wide range of of experiences that these compounds can produce there are certain experiences that seem to be most correlated with positive therapy outcomes and that a carefully designed set and setting is essential in order to guide the experience into those therapeutic directions and very soon those early researchers and therapists realized that music is and I'm quoting Helen Bonney here, one of the I main research, researchers back in the days that focused on music, of profound significance in influencing the psychedelic experience. Very little work was done in that period of time, and let alone published on yeah, music. Quite. But I think one of the things that we've done in this research, my PhD, that came out of that, is the, first of all, grounding the original hypotheses in more empirical evidence. So in one of the studies, in therapist paper, for example, we demonstrated that, that there are certain qualities in the music experience that selectively correlate with peak experiences and insightfulness, but doesn't correlate with other uh, elements in that, uh, in that question that would be used. So there was a selective correlation between those, uh, those two experiences. And when you look at drug intensity, so self-reported drug intensity, Self-reported drug intensity correlated with all of the subjective experience of the drug, which is what you would expect, right? You have this dose-response relationship. Mm. So that's really the first paper and clearly the only one that demonstrated that music can have a selective effect subjectively and can therefore have great therapeutic value. But we did, as you know, much more than that, right? We also did some psychological studies and maybe even more importantly, eventually a number of neuroscience studies where we looked at the acute effects of, in this case, LSD and healthy volunteers. And we specifically looked at how music and LSD interact together. So we had a no music condition, a music condition in the fMRI scanner, in the MAG scanner, but also a SIBO and a drug condition. And that allowed us to compare these different conditions and draw conclusions on what it is that music and psychedelics do together that they don't do in themselves. And some of the things we found there really provided some interesting insights in how, for example, music and LSD play a significant and a real, by the definition, a real interaction effect on the so-called information flow between the parahippocampus, which is a region specialized in, amongst others, personal memory formation, towards the visual cortex. So this, this particular network in the brain between the parahippocampus and the visual cortex, LSD and music interacted specifically on that direction to enhance the information flowing from the parahippocampus to the visual cortex. And interestingly, that correlated the degree to which that, the magnitude of that intensified information flow, that enhanced information flow correlated with enhanced vividness of mental imagery. And that was one really interesting finding as well. And then we looked at also at acoustic features in the music. So when you think about music, music is composed of all sorts of different elements, right? Music has changes in pitch, it has rhythm, it has key changes, it has tone color qualities and all sorts of other things. And we basically looked, we studied how the brain is processing these acoustic features and then how the brain is processing these acoustic features differently under the influence of, of a psychedelic. And it also showed some really interesting findings. For example, that there is this very pronounced increased activation in brain regions like the inferior frontal gyrus, classically thought of as Broca's area, and the planum temporala, which is a part of the audio auditory cortex. And the magnitude, again, of that increase correlated with the degree to which people reported so-called peak experiences in the music. And what is maybe most interestingly of that study is that we saw this effect in a very pronounced way in response to the so-called tone color qualities in the music, that the timbre in the music. I should define it for a moment for your listeners, but tone color is usually defined as 
those qualities in the music that are not pitch and not volume. So if I would play two different instruments to you, let's say a flute and a violin, um, but I would play them in the same volume yeah. and in the same pitch, the other harmonics, they give the quality to the instrument. You can tell them apart. Exactly. Even I could tell apart uh, the same note on a violin and a flute, and that's because of the tone color. Okay, I've got it. Thanks. And we also use tone color to recognize voices of significant others and our people in general. Mm. But during our development, before we are born even into this world, there's a lot of interesting prenatal, perinatal research looking at child development and early born or, or, or infants that are just, just born and looking at audio, uh, auditory perception and music perception. And they, these researchers demonstrated that children, even before they are born into this world, have exceptional musical capacities, most notably related to identifying nuance in tone color. And one of the evolutionary qualities there is that tone color is important to differentiate between different voices, right? Of different significant others around us. And there's a whole body of literature out there that, that um, is arguing that tone color is this, this very important feature to convey emotionality as well, both in voice as well as in music, right? When my voice becomes less harmonious and more dissonant, it can communicate anger, for example. Yeah. And we saw this, um, to bring it to our research, we, we saw this really significant increase in response to the tone color in the music, intensified under the influence of LSD. And that was one other really interesting finding. And I'm going to pause myself here because there's a lot to say about those, those studies. On that point, Mendel, that's very interesting. So, you know, when I lecture about psychedelics, I often, I think many of us do now, we sort of look at the entropic brain and the, the changes in connectivity and the, and the breakdown of the default mode and the hyperconnectivity that allows and say we're putting the brain back to a, a state which it used to be when you were a child you know, before the brain got so locked down into all its kind of constrained ways of doing things. But I've really not thought about it, to be honest, in context of, of sound before. Do you think the same thing is happening? Do you think psychedelics are putting, putting us back to a more childlike way of appreciating sound and music as well? Yeah, that's definitely one of the hypotheses that is coming forth out of these studies is that and there's multiple ways, as always, that we can describe these results, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. But one is the argument that by removing the usual control mechanisms in the brain, in this case, specifically in this study, the influence of the precuneus over the inferior frontal gyrus and the auditory cortex, that that allows for a more freer, disinhibited way of processing sound. In this case, that may lead, for example, to more of a hyper-associative way of responding to music as well. Right? When we think of our brain as a, as a meaning-making engine, right? we feel all of these internal models of meaning-making we project out in the world. And the same with music. Maybe we have these associations with music. We listen to music and it, 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 carries, on, it carries us on this journey of, of associations, of mental imagery, of feelings and all of it. And in the psychedelic state, the, the, one of the potential brain mechanisms is that, that is that the psychedelic is allowing the associations that you have created, have evolved to, to, to have in response to music are more freely expressed. Another non-mutually exclusive mechanism here is, is serotonin 2A activa uh, activation in these various regions that also process sound, for example. Right, serotonin 2A receptor being the main target for these classic psychedelics, but also the serotonin 2A receptor being primarily expressed on the, the deep layer pyramidal neurons. And that when we look at these neurons, and when we look at these neurons from, a, from this perspective of predictive coding, this what I just poetically <laughs> explained as a meaning-making engine, it seems a number of research that the serotonin 2A receptor is involved in providing those top-down predictions to explain our sensory experience. So another element here may be that in deep psychedelic state, we are able to experience the sensory details in music in more detail, but also in a more, to your words, entropic way. So we, we also project our own sensory detail on top of that as well. Yes, so I think that kind of fits well with, with your, your findings there. But the next stage, of course, was that you joined the team to do the, the very first clinical trial in resistant depression, and you created the, uh, 
the soundtrack for that? Well, maybe it's not a soundtrack, or is it? <laughs> Tell us about how you went about developing that. <laughs> well, I asked Robin, and he said yes. <laughs> That's the short, the short answer. And then while I was designing that playlist, I was thinking, geez, what the hell did I got myself into? This is such a responsibility to design the soundtrack for the experiences that these patients are going through. What is this? Well, uh, we were all doing something that was quite challenging <laughs> and difficult for us. It was, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, I was really aware of the opportunity that patients have in the trial, but the, the amount of suffering that they yeah. went through and the opportunity they have in that trial to to get better. But the reason why I asked Robin that question is because I didn't found the other playlist or primarily the one playlist that was designed by Johns Hopkins. I didn't find it suitable for this particular clinical population and this setting. Also in terms of genre, the music was primarily classical. And it felt to me that if we are going down the route of a fixed playlist for research purposes that all patients need to listen to, we really want to talking about opportunity, want to give patients an opportunity to at least have some songs in there that can resonate with them and can provide the right support for them therapeutically. So that was one of the, one of the motivations to start designing that new playlist for the Imperial trial. Yeah, and there's much more to say about how I went about it, but the challenge there was that there was not much research out there, basically, on how, <laughs> how to design music for psychedelic therapy experiences. And of course, I read a lot of the classics out there that provided some insight in this paper by Helen Bonnie and Walter Fenke, for example, I believe it was 1967, where they talk about tailoring music to the different phases in the drug experience. You've got the pre-onset, the onset, building to the peak, the peak, the return to normal consciousness eventually. And of course, books like LSD Psychotherapy and other literature out there by Stan Groff and others that go into this a little bit, but not in that much detail. You were a bit of a pioneer, weren't you? Just saying it. You you had to pioneer this yourself, really. You were because because I don't think Robin and I were giving you much <laughs> much intellectual support there. <laughs> I would say there was a without any shame. I would say there was a great deal of artistic, musical, and psychotherapeutic intuition involved from my end as well in designing that one playlist. And of course, now we have much more insight on those studies and how we can empirically make these decisions. These decisions. But there was definitely a lot of that involved as well. I spent about two weeks more or less locking myself up and, and listening to every single song and asking myself, what is this song communicating? What are the main tones of this piece? What do I feel with this piece? And how can I tell whether that's me who was experiencing that or whether that's something more universal, which is, of course, not something you can really say. But yeah, that was a... Honestly, a very humbling experience to create that playlist for the trial, not only for the patients, but also for the therapists involved, because it was what you just said. It was a huge pioneering effort just for all of us. Oh, yes. They were listening to it a lot. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yes. Actually, you just made me reflect, Mendel. People may not realize that actually the soundtrack was being played in the, in the room rather than just through headphones. So, yes, so everyone was, everyone was engaged in it. It's true, exactly. Well, there was both. So patients had earplugs available that were linked with the same mixer, so to speak. But the music was also blasting through <laughs> through speakers in, in the therapy room. And that allowed therapists to, really, to really be, be more um, empathically present with where the patient is as well mm -hmm. in response to the music. So that in itself was quite innovative. I think there is a lot of innovation possible in this field. And I think this is... In general, right, in the psychedelic research field, there's so much left to discover and to, to ask ourselves. But yeah, to kind of wind this down to music, that was exactly my realization when I started to do this research and when I was doing my research and, and all of that, I realized that there are, first of all, so many questions left to be addressed. And secondly, psychedelic therapy originally was developed in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And then we had this huge gap in between and that led to a lot of uh, technological innovations in other industries. Yes. I mean, for our research, for example, right? The fMRI paradigm, for example, the fMRI machines, MHG, and all of that came after. So, but the same is true for the way music can be created or music can be delivered or, or all of those different music technology related elements. Yes, I suppose so. That's right. 
Yeah. yeah, in the old days, I guess it was just the old gramophone, wasn't it? In the corner of the room. <laughs> and that was what therapists were doing in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. They had a gramophone player and they had a set of LPs and they were fiddling through their vinyl and basically DJing for their patients. And usually there were two therapists and one therapist was made responsible primarily for the, the DJ component of the, of the therapy sessions. Yes, yeah, so you did it. You, it was a lot of work. You produced a brilliant playlist and then and you analyzed it in the context of the outcome just share with the uh, listeners about that right so we did a number of things in that study when it came to the specifically on the what i would say the most relevant insights for psychedelic therapy when it comes to music we did a phenomenological interview with patients and we made them complete a number of questionnaires as well and that allowed us to correlate. Uh, well, first of all, that allowed us to create a map, a map of the subjective experiences that, that each and every patient was going through in that study. Secondly, it allowed us to correlate certain elements of their subjective experiences with and the music, with the subjective experiences rated with psychedelics, with the psilocybin in this case, as well as correlating it with therapy outcomes. And first of all, what we saw was an interesting divide in kind of really from a high level in how patients related to the music. There were a number of patients that were accepting of the music. And then there were a number of patients that were rejecting the music. Right? And that of course varied from song to song and over time as well. But that was really from a high level what we recognized really quickly. Some people accepted or welcomed the music and other rejected or not welcomed the music, wanted the music to be different or not wanting the music to be there. And I think reflecting on this, that I think I learned the most from listening carefully to the patient experiences that were not so positive, that had a hard time with the music. And I think one of the, if I would summarize the main findings of that study, it's really not an exaggeration to say that music can be let me actually say it this way, that one and the same song for one patient can be a source of a therapeutic breakthrough experience that is the source of a life-changing set of emotions and insights that stay with that person for years to come. But that one and the same song for another patient can be a source of profound confusion, anxiety, and potentially significant counter-therapeutic, potentially traumatic experiences. That in that state of vulnerability that patients have in this entropic state in the brain where everything is, every, every stimuli becomes a whole world in itself almost, right? But also emotionally stimuli become way more intensified that music can really make or break the experience, so to speak. And that is, that is really one of the main messages of that one study, I would say, is that with that knowledge in mind, we need to find ways to tailor music to adapt music to the personal process that is unique for each and every individual. And this is also what I realized uh, to be something quite difficult, right? Understanding psychedelics is already a totally uh, new thing. Psychedelic therapy right, is, a, is a new phenomenon, or, or at least in the modern age, something that we are currently drawing a lot of new resources to, to understand and to ground in our modern society in a, in a new and a sustainable way. But then when it comes to music, that's a whole other level of complexity, right? The questions like, how, how do you do that? How do you know, first of all, what the patient needs? Uh, and then how, how do we go about selecting those songs for, for the patient? And is this really why you set up your company, Wavepath, then? Is this, it was from that that you decided that you needed to really invest in? It was a big, big motivation for sure. Yeah, I realized that this was really in 2015 when, you know, you and I met people like Michael Pollan and others, and I jokingly said, I believe it was to Lear that I, my fellow PhD student at the time in France, that I made this joke and this, not a joke, like a prediction that Michael Pollan's book will be the first psychedelic book that you can find in these small bookstores in airports. <laughs> and it had that impact. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> yes. So tell us about that. Tell us about this, your stage and your, your new vision and what you're doing. Exactly. Thank you. So I brought up that, that element because I realized that with that huge interest, rising interest in researching and developing psychedelic therapy, there's also a huge need 
in understanding how we can provide the best support for patients. And music is a very important component to get right. And it's a very complicated component to get right. And this is, to your point, indeed, one of the first moments where I realized that there's an opportunity here to harmonize all of the, to bring together all of the advances in neuroscience, the science of human development, the science of psychedelics and psychedelic therapy, together with the advances in biometric technologies, computational AI, computational creativity, generative music systems, more broadly speaking, into one model, into one technology. And that is exactly what we are doing at the moment, is we are building an adaptive music technology for care providers and care seekers. And it's a technology that allows the music to be adapted, tailored to the person with, I would dare to say, the same ease by which you would switch a light bulb in the room or change the temperature in the room. Because that is the ease that we want to provide to the, the therapists. And we don't want therapists to get lost in scrolling through songs and maybe even getting anxious, not knowing what song to play, and losing that presence, that empathic resonance with the patient during the therapy process. So that is what we're doing. We're building a software platform at the moment. Well, we have built a software platform at the moment where we're already serving hundreds of different clinics over, I believe, more than 30 different countries at the moment. Wow, really? Oh, so you're an instant, you're a global global company. I hadn't realized how, how, how impressive. Well done. Well done. Yeah. We received a lot of interest because therapists and cl- clinics recognize this, the importance of, of getting the music right. And then also, especially when you speak with clinics and clinical providers, the importance of standardizing the music to some degree. Like you don't, you, you don't, if you run a clinic, you don't want to let the music decisions totally free to all of your therapists. You want to kind of ground it in some. Yes. Well, you want to get the best, don't you? You want people learning and yeah, you want an iterative process whereby you slowly work towards what is kind of optimal, I suppose. Right. Exactly. You want the best for your patients as well. You want the best for your care seekers as well. Yeah. Uh, yes. So you've a public company now. I mean, how, how are you funded? Yeah, so we're not public. We're a private a private company. We started in kind of January 2019 is the kind of formal starting date where I gathered uh, the first investments and, and, and the first team members and we really started to work on our vision. But it has been really last year that things have been catalyzed quite significantly, quite organically. A lot of it has been quite a um, word of mouth kind of thing. A lot of clinics learning about our work and getting interested and recommending us and, and all of that. We have a huge wait list of clinics and therapists that we not allow in because we are really taking the experience of the patients very seriously. And we really don't want to open up the floodgate too quickly and really want to make sure that we develop this software platform with the right security measures uh, in place uh, when it comes to, for example, bugs in the music. Right? We don't want the music to suddenly drop out in the middle of a session, right? One obvious example. So we really want the platform to be solid and reliable. But what is happening is somewhere in the coming months, we are opening up that wait list more and more, so to speak. And most likely in the course of the next quarter and definitely the beginning of next year, we are having a website available where people can subscribe to the, to the service that we, we have developed. Excellent. A few years since we last spoke, but I remember you were interested also in the lighting, getting the lighting and the ambience and the invite, you know, providing a kind of package. Have you progressed that at all? Yeah, that's, uh, thanks for bringing up that question. I remember our conversations as well on that, on that topic. So the, the vision of WavePods, and this is also our, our, our company slogan, if you wish, is experience as medicine. I really came to see that, that there's something in psychedelic therapy research that has implications way beyond psychedelic therapy research. It really hints and, 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 and touches upon the very fundamental principle of human development and learning. And it has to do with this phenomenon of implicit learning, and which literally means, as you know, learning by experiencing. And this finding that replicated across many different universities and, and institutions right now, that there are certain experiences that are correlating with positive therapy outcomes and other experiences that are correlating with negative uh, therapy outcomes, is hinting that the experience is quite important. And it doesn't mean that it, it excludes these neuropharmacological effects, right? They are mutually inclusive, I would say. But the experience itself seems to be a very important component. Um, but it also hints at a very you know, more fundamental uh, mechanism in the way people learn and change. So 
if that's true, right, if one of the most significant ways to facilitate behavior change and changes in well-being, more broadly speaking, is by providing people certain kind of experiences, we may want to work more deeply together with what we refer to the so-called masters of experience, uh, the artists, the light artists, uh, the musicians, architects, and really think through how we can design experiences for patients and rethink how we design clinics and, and hospitals and, and you name it. Think through not only the sound, but also the light and all the other sensory qualities. So that is really the deeper vision of what we do. We are focusing on music because that's really kind of our starting point and our core expertise. But we ran a number of experiments, and this is really where it began as well about two years ago, together with a well-known uh, British artist, actually, um, Brian Eno, who is not only a well-known musician, but he also is an, an amazing light artist. He does beautiful work with light. And we had this space in London that was open for a number of months where we invited visitors over to have experiences both with light and with music and we studied the effects of light and music and and actually we replicated the the so-called experiences medicine hypothesis uh, i would i would call it without drug involved so we, we saw exactly the same phenomenon and since then we've been replicating it in lots of different settings also virtually but that we can facilitate experiences that have qualities of those so-called peak experiences or also experiences of insightfulness and what we came to conclude is that what all of these experiences have in common is that they are profoundly, personally meaningful. And we really are arguing that this is probably one of the most, this is most likely a very helpful umbrella term to look at what these experiences do to patients, is that they are very personally significant. And the degree of that personal significance correlates with positive therapy outcomes, or, or in our case, these are not clinical studies, these were in healthy volunteers, but they correlate with improvements in well-being. Afterwards, and we've, we've shown it with music, but also in this context with, uh, with light art experiences as well. So your vision is that people will be able to get a light environment as well as a, a music environment. Is that, is that the vision for WavePaths? So I would say, yes, uh, that we are essentially concerned with understanding how we can most reliably and effectively facilitate experiences that can bring people on the path of improvements in mental health and well-being. But there's various reasons why we'll double down on music. One of them is that music plays a very important component of psychedelic therapy. It's what I'm known for. And it's also, a, for that reason, a very helpful uh, focus point as a, as a, as a company to, to, to start with. But we are looking at other variables like light. And eventually, we will be offering those insights to any care provider, whether that's a psychedelic therapy organization or a hospital, to improve the experience of the care seeker. Right. Oh, so it's not liked as a necessary, or like would be a necessary sort of component of psychedelic therapy, but you're saying it has a broader, music and light have a broader role generally in all therapies is what you're saying. Yeah, and, and, and that's a good point. And, and what, I, what I think I would like to add to that point is that we aim to look at these elements in an integrative, integrative way, that we, it's important to acknowledge that there are lots of different variables present at, during those psychedelic therapy experience. And maybe a patient may not talk that much as usual during classic psychedelic therapy, for example, but there's still a relationship between uh, the therapist and the patient, the care provider and the care seeker. And that relationship without doubt, and there's some evidence that goes into this as well, also has an influence in the uh, experience and the therapy outcomes that, that come out of that. But yeah, there's other and then, then we have music, but then we have other elements as well. The room, the qualities of the room, the, the, the acoustic qualities of the room, the lights in the room. And there's, as you're aware of, lots of other interesting research that shows the potential role of nature and natural elements in these therapy environments as well. So, yeah, it's, I think there's a lot of, lot of, to your point, a lot of innovation that is to be done on this field, right? Both in, in music, but also in music in combination and in interaction with other variables, as well as other variables in themselves absolutely yeah well obviously all of us wish you very well in this it's a very it's exciting but a challenging thing to do because as you said there are many variables so constraining and understanding each is quite challenging but hopefully the success of wave pals will give you some funding to broaden out beyond music huh? thank you yeah it's challenging but it's not impossible it's actually very fun as well
Yes, yes. Well, you're very fortunate. You're doing what you've always wanted to do, and not many people get that kind of opportunity in life. But I wanted to talk to you about, I want to go finish by getting back to psychedelics and music but from a different perspective. And I've always been extraordinarily impressed. I mean, you know, the ability of psychedelics not just to change people's mind in terms of things like mood or, you know, or addiction, but the, the way psychedelics changed music in the 1960s. And I just wondered if you had any reflections on that. Because obviously, you know, you weren't born. But looking back and now with your knowledge of psychedelics, do you have any reflections as to why I think it was one of the most profound changes in music ever? Well, I think that's, that's a great question. Maybe first of all, it will be important for both of us to acknowledge that it's not just psychedelics, but many drugs, right? It influenced music. Mm-hmm. Jazz and blues are yeah. notoriously associated yeah. with marijuana culture, for example. So, yeah, but, but, but psychedelics specifically, I think what happened in the 60s specifically was a, a cultural liberation, a challenge of the usual status quo and the, the norms that were present at that time. And that was partly most likely fueled by psychedelics. It also, I guess, was the right timing for it in history, right? It, people in the U.S. in particular were in this post-Vietnam, or no, that was in the middle of Vietnam. There was a lot of uh, criticism on how America was handling the war, and the youth was kind of getting bored and tired of, of how things were run in the, in the country, more broadly speaking. So you had a lot of different things that came forth from grassroots revolutionary movements that challenged women rights, nature preservation rights, environmental protection movements, you name it. And when it comes to psychedelics, I think one of the things that happened is that this, this is really bringing us back to our research as well, is that the experience of music is so profoundly different under the influence of a psychedelic. The, the, not only the intensity, but the depth, for lack of a better word, that you feel in, in, in the music, the imagery that comes with the real journey that it provides, it's like a living dream, basically, where the music becomes the soundtrack for that living dream, where the content is your own personal content. But that need, as I say, formed a huge inspiration for a lot of musicians to think differently about ways of producing music. But of course, the Grateful Dead that were, you know, got well known for huge communities all together on LSD at Grateful Dead concerts. You have. Um, you need to actually help me with a memory refresher here. You got on the West Coast. Oh, Haight Ashbury, Haight Ashbury in San Francisco. Yes. Yeah. What you're saying, Mendel, is I think the inter- the interesting question is. I guess you're right. It was a kind of perfect storm of of individual sort of brain changes, plus a societal change, and the two came together to produce this profound alteration, and uh, which has you know actually been quite enduring. I mean, you know, there it's. Uh, the lessons of the 60s yeah, are still being taught and are still being, being uh, and the music is still being played, isn't it? And that'll never change that. Yeah. And to that point, it was not only musicians taking psychedelics and listening to music in a new way. Music also was part of most, if not all, of the, at least many of the first experiences that people had with psychedelics, either on festivals or with friends at, at, at parties or you name it. And so the reason I bring up this, the acid test bus was that that bus that was touring around and giving huge amounts of... Magic bus. Exactly. But it was equipped, a lot of people don't know this, it was equipped with synthesizer setups by um, Bukla, the infamous Bukla synthesizers from the Uh West Coast. You had the Bukla synthesizer, the East Coast, you had the the MOOC, Robert MOOC. Uh And these um, synthesizer setups were actually designed as such that there was a particular panel on these modular synthesizers where yeah. people dropped acid drops. So people could simply swipe their, <laughs> their fingers <laughs> in the panel and lick their tongue. And <laughs> I did not know that. I did not know. <laughs> if you haven't seen the film, it's just a remarkable film because they managed just recently in the last few years to synchronize the soundtrack with the, with the video track. And it is, a, it is a remarkable film and a remarkable adventure as well. Yeah, so it's, uh, it was really coming together, the coming together of the brain, the music, and society. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what we're trying to do now. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, you're doing that. And but yeah. before we finish, I, 
I want to tell you something that I've learned from you, which, uh, which is not about music, but which is actually the analogy you use about how psychedelics work, which I use a lot now, which I think is perhaps the best analogy. This was your analogy, I believe, because I remember when you're giving one of probably your talk, trying to explain your PhD to us, and you use the analogy of well, you know, what, what happens in the brain to, in, in the normal processes of development, and then how do psychedelics change that? And you came up with this wonderful analogy of skiing, of skiing down, uh, basically skiing down a mountain in the snow. And uh, over time, as people ski and ski and ski, well, actually, hey, you should tell it. Remember it? You know it? Tell it as you told it, because it's such a great way of understanding the the problems. of. uh, Go on. Tell them the story, Mendel, please. Tell them your analogy. Yeah. I'm happy that that analogy became so popular. It was a reminder of the importance of storytelling, right? Of trying to simplify complex um, ideas in a, in a more comprehensible manner. So yeah, the, the metaphor here is a hill or a mountain covered in snow. And, and you can think of the mountain covered in snow as the mind or the brain and information processed in the brain as sledges slowing, going down from the hill creating these trails in the snow. And the more those sledges slide down through the snow, the more these ingrained trails appear. But also when a new sledge then goes down, it it automatically is attracted to these trails that are pre-existing, basically. And this is what our brains evolved to do, right? It's, um, to get to my earlier point, it's a habit or a meaning formation engine, in a good sense, for really good evolutionary reasons, because we don't want to rethink everything we do all the time. So, but but psychedelics, one way to think about how psychedelics work is that psychedelics would temporarily flatten the snow of this hill. So these trails would temporarily disappear and information can be processed more freely. Sledges can explore different landscapes with greater ease, with less constriction. And then to the the point of music, the question then is, well, if you are in therapy with a psychedelic, in a psychedelic state, what landscapes should I direct my sledge to or my ski to have those experiences, right? And then music can be thought of as this sort of guidance, really to guide the, the experience in those directions. And the power, the power of the analogy of getting stuck in a rut is, from my perspective, is even more relevant to people with disorders like depression or addiction because there, their minds really are stuck in ruts. And they, even if with their best efforts, they can't throw themselves or think themselves out of the rut. So as I say, it's a great analogy and it's one I use all the time. And thank you for, for sharing that with us all those years ago. Thank you for your uh, pioneering work in terms of, of music and the brain and, uh, and music and therapy. And uh, I just wish you all the best. And I wish WavePass all the best in this amazing adventure you're going on. And I hope you succeed. It's a real pleasure and the, the gratitude is, is fully mutual, needless to say. You know, we've been on this journey for many years together. It was fantastic to work with you for those many years. And actually this podcast, when I was kind of, kind of thinking about it and getting close to this time, I brought up many, many good positive memories of my time at Imperial and your office and, and all of that. So this, my career has really not been possible without you. You know, this has been an incredible opportunity that you provided me you and robin provided me well you chose it you grasped it and you've done extremely well and, and thank you for sharing with us today thank you so much Mendel. yeah it's a real pleasure david thank you thank you for having me on your show well that's the end of this episode of the drug science podcast thank you for listening but before you go i would just like to share with you a question from our drug science community members recently we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you want to ask me anything, perhaps we could do an Ask David Anything Part 2. Enjoy. Hi there, David. To what extent 
do other tryptamines identified in naturally occurring mushrooms, such as bayocystin or irogenesin, having the suppression of the default mode network? And in turn, what effects do you think this has on the, uh, the reduction of depressive symptoms? Do you think that other isolated tryptamines may have a better effect than psilocybin? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. It depends what you mean by better. I think it's completely plausible that other tryptamines will, well, I'm sure they'll do the same thing. I'm sure they'll disrupt the default mode network. If they work on the, the 2A receptors, they will, it's hard to imagine how they couldn't if you can get enough in. The problems will be this. The problems will be that none of these drugs are pure in the sense that none of them just target that 2A receptor. And if they target other receptors, then you might get side effects, which are not good. So one of the reasons we were allowed to use psilocybin, even though it wasn't a medicine, was because I persuaded the MHRA, the Medicines Regulatory Authority, that a million young people using mushrooms every year since about the 1980s was evidence that they were safe. And they said, oh, that's true. But if you were using a pure version, a, a rarer tryptamine in mushrooms, it might be harder. To, well, in fact, I don't think you'd get permission, to be honest. I think you'd have to do some safety studies, which are expensive and kill animals and things. So, but the answer is, it's an interesting question, and I would like it researched. And I do get emails, maybe from people, maybe you even, telling me that the, the entourage effect in the magic mushroom is, should be encouraged and used. And I, I am sympathetic to that. I, the problem is in Britain, and this is, a, this is actually a huge problem, and it's been highlighted by medical cannabis. Britain has never licensed a plant medicine. Well, never in the modern era, since we've had licensed medicines, we have never licensed them. In Germany, they have like 26 plant medicines. But because we are the best in the world at licensing, we don't license plant medicines. And so actually getting a mushroom extract into the British medical market is probably going to be almost impossible. But hopefully it'll happen in other countries. And it'll be, I think it's a really good question. It'll be very interesting to see. And the default mode, why does that lift depression? Oh, that's because depression is a disorder in which the default mode, the default mode is what drives your sense of self. And in depression, the default mode is overactive because depressed people are thinking too much about themselves. They're thinking largely about mistakes they've made. They're ruminating on their self-guilt and their self-problems and, and their errors they've made and people they've upset. And that is driven by the default mode locking itself in a particular way. It's, we call it tramline thinking. And psychedelics disrupt that. And then just for a few hours, you've broken free from that thinking. You cannot, you know, you cannot ruminate under in a trip. And that gives you a chance to see that there is another way out. You know, you can actually see an alternative. We actually know your brain, you can be different. And that in, for many people is very empowering. But also you can get insights into why you were depressed and you can see solutions to those problems. And then, you know, when when you come out of the trip, the default mode starts to settle back but it can settle back with a, a different frame of reference, a different um, that sort of mental content, which can be more optimistic and uh, hopefully protect you against depression for a period. And in some people, you know, they, it does seem that depressions have been cured. Not very many, only about, about a fifth seem to be fully cured. The others, depression creeps back, probably because depression is a, an insidious kind of learning in the brain. And many people who've been traumatised since childhood, their brain is almost kind of, that's their default state, is a bit like, you know, if you're, if you're starved in childhood, you don't, you know, your body doesn't develop normally. If you're, you know, maltreated, your brain develops in this negative way. <laughs> <laughs>